There is one book that I have my entire team read or listen to every single quarter. And this author has made such a profound impact on my company, Impact School, and the way in which we do things that the moment I first implemented one of his methods, I knew that I would have to meet him some day. And I finally got that opportunity. And today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Chris Voss to Impact School. This conversation involves a hostage negotiation roleplay. I actually get to do a roleplay with the guy that used to be the lead hostage negotiator for the FBI. Not only that, but we talk all about how you can ensure that you always get the outcome that you want or better. And as well as that, this episode here today is going to empower you when it comes to sales and negotiation more so than any other piece of content that you have consumed before. So you need to make sure right now that you have a pen and paper or a document or your notes open because my, oh my, if you just really listen to this episode sentence by sentence, there are going to be things in here that can help you make more money, that can help you have a better quality of life, and that can ensure that you always get what you want. So this is episode three of Impact Schools podcast. Just go to impactschoolpodcast.com forward slash three for all the show notes, a link to Chris's amazing book, Never Split the Difference. You need to listen to that or read it. Seriously, so good after this. But of course, listen to the rest of this first. And as always, all of the show notes are going to be over there at impactschoolpodcast.com forward slash three, as well as a free training that I'm grateful to give you. So with that said, let's get into today's episode of Impact Schools Podcast. And by the way, if you share this on your Instagram stories, make sure to tag me at Lauren Tickner and tag Chris at FBI Negotiator. So let's get into it. So Chris, welcome to Impact Schools Podcast. So Chris, would it be ridiculous for me Look to at ask? you. <laughs> Why about- no? Somehow I feel con- Strangely compelled to just say no. <laughs> About a specific time where you didn't actually achieve the outcome that you were after. Something yeah. that stands out. Well, what, like, was it a, an abject failure or, Just you know. a time where you really, really wanted something and it just went totally south. Because I think there's a lot to learn from. from yeah, yeah, moments. of course. Well, who's it? Was it, uh, I'm going to say Conor McGregor who said, I went or I learned. I'm a big believer in that, but you got to be willing to learn. Um, one, one, in hostage negotiation, one of the one of the key turning points was um, was working a case in the Philippines of Burnham Sabero kidnapping. Uh, Guillermo Sabero, Martin Gracia Burnham were the Americans that get scooped up, and um, it turned into a massive train wreck at the end. And two or three, our Guillermo Sabero was murdered about three weeks in, beheaded by life. Abu Sayyaf, the terrorist group in the south of the Philippines. They had already beheaded some other people. They like beheading people. And uh, Guillermo um, got on their list among the hostages. And then about 13 months after that, after um, the bad guys had reneged on an agreement for release, uh, there was a botched rescue attempt and two out of the three remaining hostages who were Deborah Yap, Filipino female, and Martin Gracia Burnham, Martin was killed and so was Deborah Yap in a botched rescue mission, and which was an accident. The Philippine scout rangers didn't even know that there were hostages in the Abu Sayyaf encampment when they opened fire on them. So we were sure that we had an agreement. We collectively uh, was coaching a negotiator uh, about a month earlier. I thought they were going to let him out, and they didn't. So... You know, in deconstructing that train wreck after the fact, what happened, we actually ended up coming up with a better proof of life strategy and learning a lot and getting better. And it was a mess. It was probably, uh, I realized it was really selfish for me to say when I got the news that Martin had been murdered was the worst moment of my professional career because I didn't actually lose a member of my family. It was, yeah, it was, it was it seems silly for me to say it was hard on me, but it was a low moment. Um, but we had to get better. 
So it was it was a train wreck, and and we got better and ended up saving other people's lives and getting other people out faster, because collectively we were determined to learn from it, and we did. And that's it, isn't it? It's it's being willing to learn from those times. And so I heard just the most incredible stories in your book. And I know the five-year anniversary is coming up. I know when we met, we were speaking at War Room a few weeks ago here in Vegas. And uh, I told you, you I You, by have... the way, gave a phenomenal presentation. Thank I found you. it very useful. Likewise. I mean, your stuff is just unbelievable. And that's why I have everyone on my sales team listen or read your audiobook or book every quarter. Wow. Once a quarter, they listen or they read because I think... You know, the skills in which you teach are foundational principles. Right. Okay. Oftentimes on social media, we see the tactics. We see the latest gimmick, the little thing to say. A lot on of sales gimmicks, tool. yeah. Huh? And when, with regards to your stuff, it really is the concepts that are going to allow you to negotiate in any situation, not just on a sales call not just in a big meeting or when you're trying to get financing for your business or when you're, it's even things like, okay, when you want to go out on a date to a specific place with your partner, right. you have to sell them on the idea. And not only that, but it's also ensuring that you have a better understanding behind the reasons why people are going to either say yes or say no to what you're going after. Right. right. You really tap into the psychology. And when it comes to the foundational principles here, Everyone has to go and read your book or listen. I mean, that just goes without saying. Never split the difference. It's it's just, it's too good to not. Thank you. But what I always want to ask people when, when I'm talking to them is like, you know, your core concepts are in your book, but there are always going to be certain things that you couldn't quite put in there because maybe it just didn't fit or it fell, fell outside of the, the structure of the book that you would like to have shared. Right. And so... Let's say you were revising your book and there were a few miscellaneous chapters that you could put in. What would be a couple of those things that you'd like to share with the world? Yeah, well, the, fir the first one is um, what we call proof of life or the favorite of the fool. Like if you don't know who the fool in the game in is, it's you. <laughs> That's awesome. So... It never occurred to me that there would be a lot of fake negotiations that would actually be a really significant problem. Uh, proof of life. Um, in kidnapping, it's do they, do they actually have the hostage? Which a lot of times one kidnapping group will find out that somebody else has a hostage and they'll try to get to the family first and get the ransom, never having had the hostage. They just know the kidnapping is there. So do they have the hostage? There's something called coyote kidnappings, cross-border kidnappings in Mexico. Like some college kid is partying in Mexico and they get hammered and they leave their wallet and their ID someplace. Well, somebody at locals smart enough to know if they found a wallet on the floor of a bar in Mexico, there's a pretty good chance a kid ain't waking up for 12 to 24 hours because they're passed out someplace. So they're going to call the family and say, hey, I got your kid. Pay me now. Western Union meet $10,000 now. And it's dialing for dollars for them. It happens all the time. And some dad or mom is scared enough to go down to Western Union and pay the 10K. So do they have the hostage? And are they going to give them to you? Those are two critical issues on proof of life in an in a international kidnapping. Business, we didn't think it was going to be a real issue, proof of life, but it is. And we started talking about it. We, you know, my team, my son and I, Derek gone. We got a team. You want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go as a team. Got a team. And we started talking about it. And then somebody told me one day, like, oh, yeah. It's in the book, The Challenger Sale. They actually ran a survey. They said at least 20% of them, the business opportunities and negotiations are fake opportunities. They ran the data. And they surveyed a whole bunch of business executives. And they said, how often are you lying to the other side about whether or not you want to make a deal? Mm -hmm. You're looking for due diligence. You're looking for free consulting. Through the course of the negotiation, you want them to tell you how they're going to do stuff. Then you're just not going to hire them. Mm -hmm. Or are they a competing bid? You're only looking for a price. And they, ran the, they did a survey and they found out 20% of the time. 
Now, people don't exaggerate how much they lie because basically they're asking business executives, how often do you flat out lie to somebody about whether or not they're going to get the deal? So that 20% number's got to be low. And we started coming up with very specific techniques taken straight from hostage negotiation to test whether or not you're the favorite or the fool. And the people that have adopted it have found the number to be closer to 80% of the time. So then without raising their prices, if they're only working 80% as hard for the same amount of money, think of the automatic bump they've given themselves at an hourly rate. Or then the people that are not going to make a deal with you, they soak up your time and they keep you from the people who are going to make a deal with you. So the costs of there being no proof of life in the deal are astronomical. Yeah, that's huge. And it's not even just the time. It's also the energy of yep. yourself, of your sales team. If they're constantly hearing, I'm not taking up, taking you up on this offer. No, thanks. No, thanks. No, thanks. And just passing. Then that's exhausting. And that's going to lead to burnout as well. Yeah. And um, I think this Good is something. In, Turn over everything. It costs you as an employer a lot of money. Exactly. And you, and you start to feel like a failure. Is this something that people actually want? Are people just not doing business with me because they don't like me? Is there something wrong with me? Why does everyone always go to the competition? Right. And then that's why so many entrepreneurs, they have so much self-doubt in their heads. Right. Because they're not actually identifying, really, why do people want to do business with me? So, right. I mean, I'm huge on pre-qualification before getting to the point of even taking a call with someone. But... How, how is it that people are able to identify if there really is going to be proof of life? Are there a few things to have a checklist for, to look out for that we can share with our audience? Here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'll, I'll give you some groundwork to start with. And then first of all, you got to be just open to the idea mm. and begin to develop your own checklist. Yeah. But short and sweet. Um, the crazy thing is it's only time you should ever ask somebody why. Now, one of my advantages of having literally negotiated pretty much in every culture on the world kidnappings, but it's a human nature response. And in every planet on earth, in every culture on earth, if you ask somebody why it did something, it provokes defensiveness, which is a crazy thing. Cause I'm, and there's so much business advice out there. Ask, get, find out their why, find out their why. Mm-hmm. Well, when you were two years old and you did something wrong, the nearest adult to you pointed at you and said, why did you do that? Doesn't matter what religion, what culture, what ethnicity, what part of the world across the board. Everybody from a very early age, conditioning from infancy, when somebody asks us why, we just did something wrong. We don't know what it was, but we're being accused. Everywhere. Saw trigger people everywhere on the planet. So as a general rule, you shouldn't ask, like, why do you do what you do? You should say, what makes you do what you do? Switch your why to what? Except on proof of life. If you were talking to me, call me on the phone, Chris, want your team to teach me negotiation, I would say, you know, there's a lot of other people out there. You can go to Harvard. You go to MIT, you go to Kellogg. Why me? Why would you come to me? Now that defensiveness triggers you into defending me, which now no longer are you wrong, but you're also protecting me. And those two things together, if you have an answer, you're going to tell me. What does that do? It lets me know on my value proposition hierarchy, how you rank it, mm-hmm. which if I'm going to talk to you about my value, I got to know what you value first. Now, if you go, well, why not you? There's no proof of life. You're playing me. Mm-hmm. Or if you say, well, why wouldn't I? It's up to you to sell me. Once again, 
You're playing me. Mm -hmm. You're looking for competing bid, due diligence, or you're just trying to convince yourself that you're already doing what you should be doing. Mm -hmm. Free consulting potentially. But if you can't, if you don't shoot back at me, why? If you try to put it on me, then uh, there's a complicated answer. Vision drives decision. You were caught off guard by the question before you sat down with me. You had no vision in your head of doing business with me. And since you had no vision, your immediate response is to throw it back on me. Because you had no intention of doing business with me, so you had no vision. Flip side is, you'd be like, oh, wow, hostage negotiators. I mean, you guys know emotional intelligence or hostage negotiation. You guys run high stakes every day. You're going to be able to give me reasons right away. Now, I might not think they're the best reasons, but I need to know what your starting point is. Totally. And then when you know those reasons, usually they're, what we've seen is they actually speak the emotional reasons behind getting on that call there. Yeah. And then you can use that when you're actually... When they start coming up with objections at the end, if they do, then you can revert back to that, which I think is huge as well, because it gives you a basis yeah. to go back on. And something huge, 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 huge that you do this naturally, right? Because it's just it's just second nature to you. But we were on a sales team huddle. I do it here in Pacific time, 6.30 a.m., Monday through Friday with my team, right? And this is just probably the most important part of my day, right? Because training my sales team, it's, it's you know, it's, it's everything. Yeah. And so one thing that we were talking about that relates to exactly what you just said is placing that bit of doubt in their mind prior to asking the question. Giving that comparison, that anchor, why not? You could go to Cornell University, you could go with this sales trainer, why me? And so I think people sometimes are afraid to do this yeah. because they're worried, oh, if I mention all these other opportunities, then the person who I'm trying to close as a client, for example, they might go research these other things. Right. And so you come in this with so much certainty, right? Because you know you're good at what you do. For practice. Uh-huh. And so tonality and the yes. way in which you worded that question is everything. Though. Yeah. So how, how, how do you find people are actually able to practice that? the tonality without feeling weird, because this is the thing that we hear a lot. I just feel weird practicing my tonality. Right, right, right. Well, well two things. First of all, um, do it out loud on your own. And we like to say small stakes practice for high stakes results. Mm. Like you're never going to try it for the first time in a really important conversation. Mm -hmm. So try it with whoever's driving you around. Try it with whoever you're buying coffee from. Try it with the people in a restaurant. You know, that you, small stakes practice. Just And you get plenty of opportunities every day. Imagine yourself in your head. Um, there's something called visioning, which is how athletes perform better in real life. They see themselves doing it in their head. You can rehearse in your head. You go back to a previous conversation where you didn't do it. And go back in and edit the video in your head. And imagine yourself saying it differently. Most of the time, when we go back to conversations, we reimagine how it actually happened. Or we imagine ourselves getting angry or some sort of negative emotional response. Most people don't realize I could go back and recut the film. And recut it with me saying and doing it properly. That's how great athletes perform. They, they, they do it in their head. And then when they get the chance, having done it in their head a few times, the way they want to do it, then it increases the chance of a small sex conversation. That's huge. And, and even, even things as simple as doing it in your head the way that you want it. And then when you've actually done something like a sales meeting, right? If you can record it, record it. Yeah. Actually go and review that. Yes. That's everything. Yep. Why do all these athletes, when they're training with their coaches, they have the training on the on the pitch. When it comes to the actual part where they're studying how they perform, they watch the footage back. Right. Right. They watch the footage back. So when you were doing your negotiations in these huge, hugely important high stakes scenarios where 
you're negotiating for people's lives. Afterwards, of course, you know, it's like when I do an interview, I always think, oh my God, I wish I asked that. Now that's not important, right? This isn't an important high stakes scenario, but you must've had that sometimes where you would be just thinking, oh my gosh, why didn't I go this way or that way? And so when you were doing these negotiations, how were you actually able to ultimately keep your mental sanity? Because that's huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, when I first got into it, I was volunteering on a suicide hotline. Right. And uh, there was a lot of oversight when you start out, a lot of really good training and then a fair amount of oversight. You know, you take once where you're still in training, you start, you take a call and then you go and you talk about the call. And if you had, and you get coaching, um, you know, you, when you're in the call, you're on your own. But afterwards, immediate feedback from who was listening to the call gave you some coaching. And that got me started. And But then I failed to appreciate my first year on the hotline, how perishable the skills were. And what you're talking about, how, how do you practice, how do you stay sharp? After I'd been on the hotline for a year, we come up for an, I come up for an annual review. And I take this call and I think I did a great job. I mean, I was so good that the person that called congratulated me on how good I was. And I remember getting ready to go in the, in the room to listen to the supervisor who was reviewing it. And I was kind of like, ah, you know, ah, I'm looking forward to this. And this really sweetheart of a guy named Jim, he's like, man, that was horrible. I go, did you actually, this is a call I took? <laughs> Did you hear that guy congratulate me how good I was? He goes, yeah, let's start that. that. That's the first problem. If they tell you that you did a good job, then they're helpless without you. Which means you didn't make him feel empowered in any way. You didn't make him feel like he found the answer himself. As soon as you get off the phone, he's dude's lost again. That's the first thing you did wrong. And so I was like, I had no idea how much my skills had eroded. So... We advocated in the FBI teaching it as one method to stay sharp. I think probably the best, best method would be to review your recordings, the actual execution with colleagues, and then to be able to go over it with them. That I don't think there could be a, a better way. It's better than role-playing. It's better than teaching. We didn't have that capacity, so we put a heavy emphasis on teaching because you don't want to be embarrassed and teach it wrong, so you take a deep dive. And we, we role-played a lot, role-playing's limitation with emotional intelligence scenarios is you got to have a role-player that's going to respond correctly. And most of the time, they won't. So if your role-player isn't any good, then it's you got to teach it. And we taught constantly. And then we would, my first year being a full-time hostage negotiator, there was a massive amount of um, uh, money for field exercises. So I got a chance to, we traveled all over the U.S. putting negotiation teams into really complicated field exercises. So I got a lot of practice coaching teams mm -hmm. also, and then trying to bring out the best of people. But, you know, rehearsal, some sort of small stakes rehearsals where people didn't actually get hurt. Right. And, and you mentioned being embarrassed. You have to let down your ego. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because I've done this before. I don't really take too many sales calls myself these days, but I will go back into the archives and have my team listen to me on some sales calls. And it's just, it really is humiliating. <laughs> but I get them to rip me apart. Because they learn. And as right. you said there, you then began coaching other people and you learn a lot from teaching, even if you're not the best expert, right? Because you identify things that are at the top of your mind that maybe for other people, they've sunk down to the back of their mind. Right. Right. And so I think what you just said there is, is critical. So something that's been highly requested from the Impact School community has been to do a... Uh, a role play of a hostage negotiation. Okay. Okay. So I guess I'll be, who shall I be? The per Obviously I'm going to be the person who is like holding hostage, but right. think of a scenario. What's the scenario that we could do that's been kind of crazy that you've actually been in? I mean, there's been a lot 
But I live in Dubai, right? So maybe right. we could do something to do with the Middle East. Well, I mean, the kidnapping dynamics pretty much play out the same regardless. And and, and I know that every now and and, and, and and Emirati gets grabbed. Okay. So I've grabbed... So I am from the UAE and I have... I've kidnapped three girls from the UK. Okay. That's the situation. Okay. Right. And uh, I'm holding them hostage at my my villa on the palm. That's the situation. Okay. Okay. And I want, I mean, I really want to pay off my villa and it cost me 70 million dirhams. Okay. So that's like, what, about 20 mil US? That's what I want. In, in exchange for the three girls. Okay. Okay, so how, how do you actually get in contact with these people, by the way? Uh, it's remarkably easy. Really? Because those girls are probably all carrying what? Phones, yeah. Cell phones. And in their cell phone address book, if you punch in the letters M-O-M, what do you get? Right, yeah. Okay. It's insanely well, easy. Well, for me, M U M. M U M. All right. Yeah, there you go. Well, you would know that, right? <laughs> okay. Okay. Wow. So, so then. So you call the family. So kidnappers you, call the family. The kidnappers call the family because they want the cash. Yeah. Interesting. And so, do you do you find because for some reason when I was a kid I was always re- really terrified of getting kidnapped. I don't know why. I just I just had this. I accidentally watched some like weird adult movies, I guess. Not like that type of adult movie, but just like scary adult films. Right. And I would always be really terrified. But do you think that in these situations, the girls who I guess I have kidnapped in this in this hostage negotiation, are they actually as in danger when it comes to their lives as maybe is going through their mind? Or how how do you tell the actual the real danger. How, how do you tell the level of danger that there actually is? Okay, so it's, it's, it's all going to start with the nature of the opening demand and, and the nature of the contact. Okay. Um, but so, um, if you're in a kidnap business, and like any business, reputation matters. Okay. Or it gets around. Interesting. So if your buyer doesn't have a good feeling about you delivering the merchandise, mm. you're going to have trouble getting paid. Mm. Wow. Okay, so let's do this then. So I am the person who's on the palm in Dubai who's kidnapped these three girls, right? And so I grab one of their phones and then I phone their mom. And then from there, the mom would get in contact with you. Or, you know, uh, yeah, the, the mom, uh, mom's going to get in, family's going to get in touch with, with somebody who's going to coach them. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, it's either going to depend upon who they are, the level of acumen, right. whether or not they already had kidnapping ransom insurance on the girls, wow. which if they're traveling internationally, there's a decent chance that they do. Then there's going to be a private contractor that's either going to handle the negotiations or most likely coach mom. Wow. So the mom is actually the one on the phone doing the negotiating. If she's coachable, can be. Absolutely. Wow. That is, wow, that's a lot. I didn't realize. I thought that it was it would often be you who would then be on the phone with the host, the person holding the person hostage. Well, you know, to to keep it as real as possible. Yeah. You know, you want real people on the phone. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I remember hearing uh, the story in your book where the person was just like making these outlandish claims, and that's how you knew that they weren't actually going to follow through. Yeah, or yeah, the nature of the demand. Like, for example, if the demand is, look, we want all the Brits out of Iraq in 72 hours, I'm going to kill your daughters. Yeah. It's impossible. Even if you wanted to get all the Brits out of Iraq in 72 hours. Right. Or at all. You couldn't do it in 72 hours. Yeah. I mean, that's a guaranteed failure to start with. Mm. So is what they're asking... If you were willing to comply now, yeah. could you do it? But so here's the thing. What if they just won't budge? And that is really, that's exactly what they want. 
and they just won't budge. I guess that's where you come in and, and get them to budge. Well, yeah, then if, if that's, if they, if in their mind, well, let's play it out. Okay, okay, so I'm, I'll go for something more crazy than that then. Sure. So I'll say, I'll go with what you said then. I want all the Brits out of Iraq within 72 hours. Okay, right. so, all right, so at this point, so you're I calling a family phone. I'm calling you. I'm answering. Okay, okay. So Just you're going to be... ring, 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 and okay. I'll answer. Ring, ring, ring. Hello? Hey, I have your daughter and two friends, and I want all the Brits out of Iraq within 72 hours, or I'm going to kill them all. If I could do that, what would, you, what would you want? I mean, what do you want from me other than that? I want all the Brits out of Iraq within 72 hours. Okay. Um, first of all, how do I know you have the girls? I can put them on the phone right now. Okay. So then you'd pass, they'd pass the, they probably don't, at that point, do they usually pass the phone or not? No, they don't want to put them on the phone. That's the last thing they want to do. Oh, okay. So I, I screwed up as, I'm a really bad well, <laughs> kidnapper, I guess. Even though it's the last thing they want to do, the reason you started to comply was because you said to yourself, that's actually a legitimate question. Mm. Right. Oh, yeah, exactly. I've already complied. Okay. Yeah. And that's, that's the key to any negotiation is no matter what the other side is saying, you're always entitled to ask legitimate questions. Mm. Okay. Okay. I've got as it. long as it's as long as it's it's actually a legitimate question. Yeah. And that's and that see that was one of the big pivots we made as a result of the Burnham case mm. was we discovered that that's actually a legitimate question. So no matter who you are on the other side, and this, I know it's going to sound odd, and I don't mean this is is negative, but unless you actually have something wrong with you, like mm. the, if there's if you're actually delusional. Yeah. Or if you're actually having hallucinations, which means there's something fundamentally wrong with your wiring, for lack of a better term. If all, and there, there isn't anything fundamentally wrong with kidnappers wiring, because if there was something fundamentally wrong with their wiring, they wouldn't be able to execute the kidnapping in the first place. Because it requires planning and organization, which you can't do if there's something actually wrong with you. And it could be, you could have, for example, schizophrenia. That's when there's something fundamentally wrong with your wiring. Now, because um, I, you know, you actually do have a voice in your head. And I actually don't know what that voice is saying. And there are certain drug addictions that people have found out after the fact, they develop the same sorts of problems. Like um, uh, methamphetamine, I understand. Former meth users. It just, it, it actually damages their brain. And even when they've been clean and sober for a number of years, they have a tendency to develop schizophrenic behavior. It, and we found that out the hard way. So otherwise, if there's only a chemical imbalance, which if somebody's not acting, quote, normally, or they're dysfunctional, it's just a chemical imbalance. All the rules still apply. So if I ask you a legitimate question, you're going to go like, hmm, that's actually a legitimate question. Mm -hmm. And that's how I gain, begin to gain the upper hand. That's huge, yeah, because I didn't even think twice about anything else that I wanted to say because it was a legitimate question with a, legit, a legitimate and logical answer. And so, uh, okay, let's go back to this then. So I say, I mean, I already said it, so I guess I'll have to keep going down could, that route. You can route. put them on the phone. Okay. I mean, it wouldn't be, that's how you get a hostage. That's really the only way to get a hostage on the phone. So in my head, I probably wouldn't do it yet, though. I probably, I probably, so you said to me, okay, you get them on the phone. So then I'll be like, and if I get them on the phone, are you going to? Okay, let's say, we, let's say I just spoke to one. Okay, okay. You just spoke to one, then fine. You just took the phone back. Okay. So now that you know that I have the girls, can you get? all the Brits out of Iraq within 72 hours? All right. First of all, it's going to be hard. I don't know if you've thought about how hard that would be. I don't care how hard it is because 
if I don't get all the Brits out of Iraq, I will kill the three girls within 72 hours. If I could, how do I know you won't anyway? Well, I really just want, I just want all the Brits out. That's all I want. And I can make sure that I get these girls out to you as soon as all the Brits are out of Iraq. How are you going to do that? Well, I can have a car come pick them up. I can have you flown out. Um, I have a jet so I can get you flown out here to Dubai and, and I can have you come pick them up right from my place. Do you have a jet? <laughs> of course. And it's safe? I mean, what do I know about the jet? How do I know that's safe? Yeah, I mean, I, I can see how you feel that, but here's the thing. If you guys don't start acting on this quickly, then I will start torturing the girls even before you start working on getting people out of Iraq. Sounds like you want to do something that's going to make it even harder for me to accomplish a goal. It's so it's so it's so crazy how the tonality on your side is so powerful because I've never really realized how powerful tonality is until this. I mean that is it's huge. I mean maybe as well because it puts so much pressure on you as the person who is trying to negotiate with you as the hostage negotiator. That tonality. And let's break that down. Yeah. Because this is neuroscience that works on everybody, mm -hmm. regardless of circumstances. Yeah. So what I was doing was a combination of three things. Okay. Slowing my pacing down, dropping in pauses of either a half a second or three seconds in different places. Yeah. Sort of the difference between an effective pause and dynamic silence, which is really anywhere from a half a second to three seconds or longer. Like real dynamic silence, I'll go silent and I'll just start counting thousands to myself. Mm. And silence is often misinterpreted by the user because some people are afraid to go silent because they're so people oriented that the meanest thing they could do is to give somebody the silent treatment. And because of that, because of their projection bias, then they think if they go silent, you're going to interpret it as me being furious, which is in that context, that was never your interpretation. Well, it actually made me feel like my brain was slowing down in my ability to come up with something to say. Tone of voice. I was doing that to you with two things. The other part was tone of voice, downward inflection. Yeah. It actually triggers a chemical response in your brain that slows it down. It's a, it's, you can't stop me from starting that process because you heard it. It's like, you know, when the doctor used to take a little hammer and tap you on the knee and your leg kicks out, it's an involuntary neurological wired response. Now you can fight the process, but you can't stop me from getting it started in your brain completely involuntary. So I was doing that. And then also the what and how questions, Danny Kahneman would refer to that as triggering slow thinking in your head, in-depth, stop you in your tracks thinking. Like I'm triggering, I'm, I don't really care what the answers are. I know that when I ask a what or a how question, then it stops you and causes you to think about it in depth before you answer, which is also a fatiguing behavior. Mm -hmm. So I'm using tone of voice pacing and the design of the question all at the same time to slow you down and wear you out. And so let's just say in that, in that situation, obviously the claim and the thing that I was wanting was just so ridiculous. Would you ever, let's say then you come to an agreement that I'll accept like 50 million dirham or like 
10 million US dollars. Would you right. come to that type of agreement or is it literally just give us the girls now and stop being so ridiculous? Well, so here's the crazy thing about, you know, because what you're talking about is the price term. Right. Yeah. And price in any deal is only a term. Mm -hmm. Oh, right. Okay. It's yeah. only a single term. Now, in when I was doing in the kidnapping business, I could have agreed to the price right away, which in, to some degree, I'm going to make you feel like you're going to get your money because it caused you to drop your guard. Mm -hmm. But try and get it out of me. Implementation. In any business deal, yes is nothing without how. An agreement is nothing without implementation. And if your implementation isn't discussed to some degree in advance, then it's a guarantee of a tremendous amount of time lost going back and fixing the mistakes that you should have seen coming in the first place. Mm -hmm. Or if you haven't talked about implementation in advance, if Susan starts to break down, both sides go like, well, I'll wait for the other side to start fixing this. So anger and frustration is building. And then when somebody finally does say something, they're screaming at each other. Like I was in a, I did a negotiation to pull windows in my son's house a few years ago. Contractors, probably pretty much the same worldwide. You know, they, they take a deposit and they take your deposit to go finish the job that they started six months before. And they're not going to do your job till they got a deposit from somebody else. Mm -hmm. So I, I know this is a, what they do. So I negotiated to try to save this guy from himself. If I know that's probably how he's doing business, we're not going to do it like that. Mm -hmm. So he says, well, you know, how do we do this? Eh, you give me a deposit. You know, your windows are in six to, three to six weeks. Uh, I'll call you and we'll arrange for put them in. I said, well, how do I know they're going to be in three to six weeks? And, well, they always are. They always are. You know, and again, the, the issue isn't whether or not he answers. It's the process I'm putting him through. So finally I said, okay, dress an implementation. So you keep saying the windows are going to be in by three weeks. If you don't call us three weeks from now to tell me the windows are in, then you give me permission right now to call you on the phone and call you names. And then what did he say? Well, he said, ah, just don't worry. So in two weeks and five days. Wow, you shaved off time. <laughs> he calls my son. Oh. And says, just want you to know the windows are right here. The windows are right here. And we're getting, you know, because... I just addressed implementation in a way that he didn't want to have happen. So he dropped all his other nonsense that he was doing with everybody else mm -hmm. because I addressed implementation up front. We got the windows in and because I did it nicely, you know, I made him think it was his idea by asking how and what questions. Then when we had problems on down the line also, you know, he, he handled everything. Really easily. We, you know, we had an issue with the door. We had some other stuff. and But I I didn't want any anxiety to build up on the unforeseen problems, which always drop in. That's amazing. And how did you know what it was that he didn't want? Because he clearly didn't want to be called names. Right. Well, I did it kind of playfully. And, you know, right. we went back and forth with them a little bit playful and, you know, a hostage negotiation, a late night FM DJ voice. Business negotiations, playful voice, mm -hmm. which you do naturally. Right. You know, and I don't, I think you probably, your emotional intelligence, you probably just discovered that people wanted to deal with you the more that you smile and the more that you're playful and pleasant. And a point of fact that, correlates really strongly with how many deals people make and how their long-term relationships play out. That's really interesting. I hadn't ever particularly thought about that before, so I'll take that. So thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, but, <laughs> okay, so you mentioned earlier pricing. Right. So I thought this could be this could also be quite fun. So let's say you, you're trying to sell me 
on your consulting for my team. Okay. Let's, right. let's, let's say you're trying to, and, but I'm just, I keep saying, oh, it's the price, it's the price, it's the price. Okay. Okay. So this is something that everyone is always hearing. I just can't afford it. Right. We all mm-hmm. know really that something clearly earlier on in the conversation wasn't addressed properly and such, but let's just say you're trying to, you're trying to get me as a client. And I just keep saying, oh, I just, I just can't afford it. Okay. So let's just go right there. So yeah, Chris, look, I love I love the concept. I think that you can really help my sales team, but it's just outside of my budget right now. Sounds like the value is just not there for you. I mean, I can see the value. I really can. And I mean, that's something that I probably would say to my clients too. But here's the thing is, I just can't find a way to make it work right now. So the value is not there for you. I mean, the, the value is definitely there. I just, we have these plans for this marketing campaign that we're going to be running. And I know that right now, ultimately what we need is we need more leads. Okay. And so I know that I need to spend more money on getting more leads before I can actually afford to pay your team to help us with ourselves. So what happens if you don't do anything? Um, I mean, it's, it's a good question that you ask. I, I think how it's going to look is that I'm going to have to hire a sales manager for the temporary period in between now and then when I eventually hire you guys. And um, yeah, I'm going to keep training my team, keep consuming all your free content, which is great, by the way. And uh, yeah, I guess uh, I'll be in touch in a few months. Okay. I mean, it sounds like it's just not the right thing for you right now. No, look, I, I really want it. And I, I, I do definitely see the value. It's just, I mean, I guess, yeah, I, I don't know. I think I need to just figure out the exact direction that that's going to be best for, for my company. Well, if the value is not there for you now, and then you're not going to be happy with this. And we're not going to be able to keep you as a long-term client because you would have taken what we did and it failed you. And our goal is a long-term relationship. And so do you guys have like any types of like guarantees or anything that you offer to your clients when you work with them? How does that, how does that all look? Well, the guarantee uh, depends upon your implementation. Like, it actually sounds to me like there's a little bit of a culture fit problem here because what we offer is a little bit of change of behavior. And if you don't change your behavior, then it's going to fail. And you probably have a back in the back of your mind that there's an issue as to whether or not your people are actually going to adopt, which then means it's a waste. It's a waste of your money and it's going to fail. Okay. I just want to quickly pause for a second. Okay. So two of the things that were so powerful that you did is like constantly repeating the 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 fact that I didn't see the value. I mean that is huge. Because then in the back of like my mind I'm like, no, like how how do I defend that I do see the value? I think one of the things that you do so well is like making people feel like their back is kind of against the wall and they have to like put their hand up to try and defend why they're right. Because it kind of cuts your ego a bit. Is there something behind that? Well, and I am trying to trigger those kind of feelings, but I'm not trying to make you feel like you're being attacked. No, no, it doesn't feel like an attack. It feels like I need to defend my position. In my favor. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and that's why it's not triggering, it's not triggering negative responses that damage our relationship. Right. See, I'm, 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 if, is, I prize really highly both the relationship and the business. Uh-huh. And I don't want to sacrifice either one. Because mm-hmm. if you sacrifice either one, it's going to go bad. Yeah, because I've actually had it myself before where I've been on calls with someone and then they start getting all sarcastic with me. Um, they're trying to sell me something, right? And they're getting like super sarcastic with me. And that, it does tarnish the relationship yeah. massively yeah. then guess what i'm not going to go back to them in a few months i mean this is some time ago but there's no way i'm going back to them ever 
because it changes your perception of that person yep. in their mind. Yeah. Whereas I feel like what you do in this situation is more so get me to question myself and, and my decisions and really like get into the back of my mind. And then the second thing, you know, you're, you're constantly repeating uh, the value. The second thing was making me think about the consequences of not taking action. Right. And that's the biggest thing yeah. in well, that I personally have seen in sales is like really getting people to, it's like the domino effect. What's the 10th domino going to look like when everything right. is crumbling and just all in pieces. And so I think sometimes when you haven't had a lot of practice and when people haven't been through all of your stuff, they'll just literally come out and say, so what's the consequences of you not joining my program? And it's too obvious the way in which you worded it, I think everyone should go reverse this right now. Listen to that part again. Because the way that you worded it was so perfect because it started making me play out how it could look if I didn't have that thing that I needed, you know? Right. Really interesting. That was awesome. Wow. How great was that? That was one of the most fun podcasts that I have ever recorded and doing them in person is so much fun we're actually putting these all on youtube so make sure that whatever you're listening you are subscribed we have some amazing amazing guests coming up next and head over to impactschoolpodcast.com forward slash three to get all of the show notes the free resources direct links to all of chris's work and his book never split the difference I for sure learned a lot from this episode here today and I already have studied Chris's work. And if you share this to your Instagram story, I will repost it and you'll also be able to get a free resource. That's a bonus free resource if you share that. Just make sure to tag me at Lauren Tickner and tag Chris as well at FBI Negotiator. So with that said, that's that all for today. I would love to hear your biggest takeaway when you share this on your stories or on your LinkedIn or your Twitter, whichever platform you like the best. And I'll see you in the next episode of Impact School.